part of my approach then is this glamorization almost of science. Sometimes it can be so dense and difficult. And I'm just always reminded of my time in, in geochemistry of reading these papers, which were so dense and difficult and, and just thinking like, goodness, if we could bring it into that pop sci filter and just make it beautiful and just make it so attractive and make it look like a piece of artwork where you get that double satisfaction of like, wow, this is so visually nice to look at and I can learn something from it. I think that's the main goal, the main brand I'd, I'd like to build or the main identity I'd like to have with my approach to scientific visualization. Welcome back to the Medical Illustration Podcast. This is your host, Paul Kelly, in lovely Toronto, Ontario, Canada. It's June 2022, and the weather here is wonderful. I hope wherever you're listening, it's also a pleasant day. Before I jump into this episode's interview, I have to mention my excitement at the upcoming Association of Medical Illustrators annual meeting coming up next month in Des Moines, Iowa. This will be the first in-person meeting since the COVID-19 pandemic, and I cannot wait to see my fellow medical illustrators and scientific visualizers in the flesh once again. More on that at the end of the episode. My guest on this episode is Mark Bielan, a scientist turned illustrator and designer who specializes in scientific education and communication. Before graduating from the master's program at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, Mark achieved a master's in geochemistry and astrobiology at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Mark excels in the niche of data visualization, which is an area of scientific communication we are seeing more people in the field gravitate towards. Mark currently works at Visual Capitalist, a global online publisher focused on topics including markets, technology, energy, and the global economy seeking to make the world's information more accessible by highlighting the bigger picture through data-driven visuals. Mark's illustration style and approach seems to fit in nicely there. We'll discuss his image-making process in this interview, as well as his educational background, and hear more about some of the great images he's been putting out recently. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mark Bielan. The first question I have for you is, you know, what made you want to become a medical illustrator? <laughs> Great question. I, I don't know how different my answer is going to be from virtually everyone else that's in our industry and in our field. I think, you know, my story mirrors a lot of experiences of, of other medical illustrators um, in the sense that, you know, growing up and going to school and, and that part of my life, I was always interested creatively um, uh, in art. So so I was always engaged, you know, since I was a kid, I just gravitated to visuals, I gravitated to pictures, and was always creatively focused and creatively engaged. It wasn't really until the conversations or, or the preoccupation about what are you going to do with your life starts creeping up on you, right. that, um, that you start, I don't want to say being steered, but you, you start hearing that art isn't a profession. <laughs> it's not right. somewhere you want to go. You don't really have a lot of support for it. And you know, for anyone who's going to be listening to this, if they're a child of immigrants, <laughs> I'm sure that they are first generation Canadians or, or um, North Americaners, they might uh, identify with, with that kind of, I, I want to say maybe pressure or, or societal or cultural pressure of, you know, art is not something you want to be, it's a doctor, a lawyer, etc. And so I grew up in that kind of environment. And so that's when I started to kind of switch gears from being very creatively engaged and started exploring science options and um, fell in love with with science in general, but predominantly natural history and biology. So that's kind of where my career really started. 
was there and, um, you know, studied in, did a degree in arts and science at McMaster, but studied in biology and then did a master's in geochemistry and astrobiology. And all the while I was doing those things, I was still in the background being creatively engaged with artwork or editorial work or, you know, somehow just continuing to craft and own those skills in the background. And it got to a point where I just was like tired of compromising. I I was tired of having this like, you know, uh, this almost Jekyll and Hyde kind of lifestyle of of emulating (laughs) a scientist and being scientifically minded and then having this like creative liberation on the side as a hobby. And I was frustrated with that kind of duality. So for me, what made me want to become a medical illustrator was finally getting tired of that compromise mm-hmm. and starting to look at what are my options? What can I do? Because I want to do something that's combining the two in some capacity. In my time at McMaster University, when I did my first master's in geochemistry and astrobiology, my work was focused on carbon isotopes, uh, okay. particularly isotope biosignatures. And when I was studying this, a lot of it was just over my head. It it was so difficult. It was dense. It was esoteric. And it was abstract in the sense that, you know, we can't see chemicals or compounds with our naked eye. We don't deal with them on a day-to-day basis. They're abstract. And the way we speak and talk about them is abstract. And my education at the time, you know, reading research papers was all text. And it's Mm -hmm. like, how do you, how are we talking about such abstract ideas and these landscapes, these microscapes, really. And there's no visual support for this. And I kept thinking, gosh, it would be so much easier. I would have understood this paper more if they had a great diagram about how to, you know, how this system functions or how this works. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started to realize, oh, my goodness, maybe this is a spot where I could come in and, you know, lend support for And so that's when I started Googling, started investigating and started looking around to, you know, what options are there to merge this kind of creative artistic side with the scientific world. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when I discovered uh, the BMC program, the biomedical communications program at the University of Toronto had no real background or interest kind of in in medicine or, or, I mean, biology in general, but not from the healthcare aspect, Mm -hmm. uh, not from the anatomy aspect either. Definitely, uh, you know, a, a, an armchair interest as a, as a hobbyist and that kind of thing, sure. but it wasn't an area of study. So for me, it was a bit of a like, oh, this is neat. This is interesting. And I think because up until that point, I had a versatile background, you know, I had jumped from arts and science background with a focus in biology, then to geochem and with astrobiology. For anyone who doesn't know, astrobiology is the hunt for life in space. So how do we find alien life, so to speak. And um, I just figured, well, I can hop around and do all these things. Maybe I can do medical and medicine and and that kind of stuff. And I decided to pursue it. And so, um, and, and for me, it was more so, you know, I didn't have an idea of like, yes, I want to be a medical illustrator. I want to draw, you know, anatomy and and support textbooks or, or research and that kind of stuff. But for me, it was an opportunity I recognized that wouldn't exist elsewhere in, in terms of combining art and science together uh, in a way that was tangible and would lend itself into a career. So that was kind of the motivation point. And that's, uh, that's what I wanted to do. It was the, I don't want to compromise anymore. I want to get involved. And if it were, would, would require me to get into a new field, then so be it. Let's do it. Right on. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I noticed a lot of folks 
will sort of bring in their undergrad or their previous education experience into the BMC program. Now, were there any projects you worked on at BMC that were directly influenced or inspired by your, your previous education? Um, you mean with that, uh, that previous master's or, mm-hmm. yeah. or prior? Yeah. Um, so I came into BMC also with that background and I had a project, which was, I was struggling to visualize, but I realized I also didn't have chops to do. And so I, I remember coming into the program being like, oh, if I talk to Nick Woolridge and, and see if I can, you know, pitch this project, maybe I could actually visualize that and actualize that project that's been sitting in the background. It's never come to fruition still to this day, <laughs> <laughs> but, but my mind was obviously kind of preoccupied with that. So I think in the first year, not so much, there wasn't really any overlap, I would say, but towards the second year, uh, the second year of the program, uh, when you could start taking, you know, a little bit more, uh, I want to say electives, one course I took, probably my favorite course at BMC, and my most memorable, and most enjoyable time at BMC was the comics course, Mm -hmm. uh, run by Dr. Shelley Wall. She ran a, a course for one semester that was about you know, the history of comics and how comics are used in visual storytelling, especially in didactic or instructional um, pieces of work. And um, what was really nice is that it wasn't just medical focused. So we would explore things that were scientifically focused. We would explore things that were geographically and politically minded, some types of journalistic works Mm. that were created uh, as comics. And for me, that was really, really exciting. And I think the biggest exciting factor for me was recognizing that as a child, I loved comics. I I loved, that's probably where I first really gravitated towards visuals and pictures. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in between my childhood and that course, I had maybe developed this snobby attitude of, (laughs) you know, comics are for kids. We don't do that anymore. But being in that course really let me tap into my inner child again. And I was like, this is awesome. Like, this is fun and it's enjoyable and it's really, really cool. What's really cool about it was that Shelly showed us many different ways that comics can exist or they can bend the formula of what makes a good comic. So what I mean by that is if you have a skeleton of, you know, a general comic, you know, story A to B, and these are different components and layers and organs, let's say that supply the storytelling, you know, we would look at examples of comics that would say, okay, what if we took this one component of it and twist it on its head or did it differently? Mm. So an example of that would be, there was a comic about uh, a patient's journey with some type of, I can't remember, but some type of disorder. And what they would do in the comic was that they would have the panels speak, you know, the text would be one way, but the visuals would be from the text in the previous panel. And so there was this injected delay as you were reading it. And part of that process was to stimulate the experience of being a patient with that particular disorder. And I thought that was so clever and such a unique way to do storytelling and an also very empathetic way to do it as well. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, so that kind of stuff was really, really exciting. And now I'm now I'm on a tangent, but (laughs) what I wanted to say and get that's awesome. Yeah, what I wanted to get back to was, you know, thinking about these things and being in that kind of environment, it got me thinking about my previous work, and what I had done in the past. And so that's why I thought, you know, I get 
even today, a lot of people asking me, what is astrobiology? What did you do, you know, during that time? And so that's when I thought, well, this could be a perfect time to tell that science story of what is astrobiology and what was the work that I was doing and that kind of stuff. And so I developed a comic based on my, uh, my master's thesis project. And um, that was probably the most fulfilling project because I remember just going home and spending probably an additional eight hours working till two in the morning on it. And it didn't feel like work. I was so creatively tapped into that process. I truthfully, I don't think I've had a, a project like that since, but I kind of yearned for that, that fulfillment again. It was a lot of fun and it really kind of um, shifted my perspective in terms of uh, the value of comics and, and what they can do. Oh, that's awesome, man. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Shelly is such a phenomenal instructor. I mean, she, she's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, that uh, leads me to ask, you know, I think this is something that a lot of people will either ask about, or they'll start to think about when they get involved in, you know, trying to get themselves educated as a scientific or a medical visualizer is looking for mentors, you know, and looking for people who can help kind of push them in the right direction. Uh, were there any other folks who were maybe uh, facilitators to your success or to you, you know, kind of pursuing this line of work? You know, there's, it's, it's hard to answer because I think there's so many people and I'm, I'm yeah. worried I'm going to like miss people or forget something, but you know, there's one thread of, of commonality, maybe when I look at my past experiences and kind of look at how all the dots have connected. And for me, what's really been noticeable is that I've had a lot of women be incredibly supportive towards my career and also in positions of professionalism and support and influence. And it's just funny to me that in all of you know, the groups or organizations or institutions I've been that their voices you know, have been the most impactful, I think, to me. Mm. Uh, prior to BMC, you know, uh, when I was working on that geochemistry master's project, part of it was associated with uh, NASA, uh, particularly the NASA Ames group uh, based in California. And the principal investigator for that was a Chinese Canadian woman. And she was phenomenal. I mean, I'd never seen a, a research group like that being led like that. And being exposed to that for the first time, it's still something I look back and think about. Um, she gets a shout out actually in the comic because I was so, you know, just amazed. And, and my thesis supervisor, Dr. Allison Brady, you know, also a woman in science who's, uh, was the science lead on that project. And um, so there's that as well. There's, you know, even within BMC, like Shelly was my uh, MRP supervisor or mentor or whatnot. And uh, I still keep in touch with her to this day, because we're still working on that MRP project. So she's still around and, and having her contribute and being, you know, a supporting person for that. Like, I think there's no short answer, but there's, these are some of the individuals who have, I think really helped kind of keep me motivated and keep me moving forward in this industry that sometimes can feel a little bit bleak in terms of maybe opportunity or, or where's your next step or how do you grow or that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. It can, it's, yeah. it can be really tough. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, so I think, I think indiv like individuals like that, especially, you know, women just seeing the strength and the perseverance and, and their willingness to, um, to help and support you, me in this case has been, it, it can't be unnoticed. So I'm really grateful for that. Oh, absolutely. I think it's pretty well known, especially amongst the Toronto grads of the contributions of women in, in the past who, 
really ought to have been doctors or, you know, people mm. in, in higher positions of, of power and influence within their institutions. But because of sexist practices in the past, they weren't really have had that available to them, but they could get in as medical artists or illustrators because that was deemed appropriate, right, for them, those sure. roles. Uh, and so we had all these brilliant, amazing women who were, you know, their contribution was through their art. They, they really had an amazing understanding of human anatomy and of science, and that was their venue. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that tradition definitely carries through to this day. Now, when you uh, think back on your experience from BMC, did you have any particular uh, pieces that were favorites of yours? Well, I think the comic one, definitely. Okay, <laughs> Just sure. because it was such a labor of love. I think that's first and foremost um, for me. The other project I think that I really am fond of is my MRP project, um, or my MRP. It's um, uh, animated guide to kidney transplantation. Oh yeah, and it's yeah. more of a more of a patient focused, um, patient education focused program. And the reason why I love it so much is because that project, you know, started as a task. <laughs> it's part of the part of the program's, you know, checklist of things to do before you graduate. And so at the time it was like, okay, here's something to do. Um, but it has grown in such a way that it's, it's impacted my life tremendously. Um, what I mean by that is that, um, you know, I finished the project in BMC or sorry, I finished one quarter of the project <laughs> when I was at BMC and, um, the response to it, uh, to the group I was working with, I was, it's, it's made in collaboration with St. Joseph's uh, Healthcare Hamilton, uh, particularly the kidney uh, division, the kidney renal transplant uh, division here. And the staff loved it so much and thought it was so great that they wanted to seek ways to continue doing it. And oh, uh, through that, I was able to present it at the, um, oh, I forget the name of it now. It's CST. Uh, I, I totally forget the name of it now. Maybe if I Google it quickly, I can, I, I should know this, <laughs> but no, the Canadian society of transplantation. Oh, okay. It. Oh, sure. Okay. And that's it. I should have known that, but I know that they had a lot of um, immunological people there. So I wasn't sure if it was maybe uh, like cancer, something as well. Um, but anyway, it was a, um, they had a conference and they also launched a contest that year looking for projects that they could help fund and support. And so the team at St. Joe's really encouraged me, again, led by Dr. Christine Ribic, a female, <laughs> another woman in science, who really encouraged me, uh, you know, to, to apply for this and says, you know, your project's so strong and so great. We'd love to see if we can get more funding and continuing to do this. So I flew out to Halifax, was a finalist in this contest, had to present into a room of 300, 400 immunologists, uh, which was wow. really quite um, intimidating, especially because there was a question round. And so I was just grilled on the spot. Oh, um, but it was great. I mean, I learned so much. And I think it really held my you know position and justified the value for it because we ended up receiving funding for it at the end. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. And so since then, I've been able to, you know, continue developing that story and that narrative and making more modules. And then I went to Sweden and Stockholm, Sweden, uh, for a while, uh, for about a year and a half, uh, to work with Annalise Lilienthal. She is a an AMI member, a uh, member of the Association of Medical Illustrators, I think trained in the US and now lives in Stockholm. And I worked for her. And within three weeks of being there, I was invited by the National Kidney Foundation of Sweden to give a talk in this <laughs> gorgeous part of Sweden, the Western coast, uh, in the summertime. 
And it was a camp for children who had been affected by renal transplant disease. Mm -hmm. And so they had somehow, I have no clue to this day how, found out about me working at the medical university, the Karolinska Institute in uh, Stockholm, and um, gone in touch. And that project gave me the opportunity to go there and do that and experience it. And, and again, receive more funding and, and opportunities to continue developing that. And that's something when I look back at that project, I'm so grateful for because it's never would have imagined that that's where I would go with it. And the opportunities that it's given me since then, it's, it holds a special place to me to be able to, to have been able to create that and have these things happen as a result of it. That's so awesome. I would definitely say that's, that's a, a fond one from, from BMC time. Oh, definitely. And yeah, that's an area in our field. I think that it's going to continue to see a lot of growth is the patient education and patient, patient teaching materials, right? Mm -hmm. There's much more demand for that now than ever before. And yeah, health literacy, as we know, know is critically important. <laughs> I was important. just going to say, I think yeah. after, you know, despite all the terrible and difficulties that COVID has brought us, <laughs> our industry can maybe kind of I don't want to say be thankful, but, but can be, um, I don't know, we, maybe we get a little bit of a boost in terms of like understanding our, our relevance and our importance to, to science communication. And how do you communicate such, you know, dense and dynamic situations to the broader public? Mm -hmm. So yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. I think we will be seeing more of a focus and more of an investment in these kinds of uh, projects. Right on. Yeah, that's definitely something for folks who are interested in getting involved in the field to, you know, think about and, you know, start to plan for a little bit. Now for that sort of demographic, do you have any recommendations on maybe how, how best they could prepare? I think my biggest piece of advice is to really know what your motivations are. Mm. And the reason why I say this is because, you know, prior to joining BMC, and starting that program, I had met with a graduate from there who was working full-time at uh, McMaster University. And he had told me that, you know, BMC wasn't a place that you would go into and then, you know, you could get a job right away, right after. Mm -hmm. And I think being exposed to maybe that bit of a reality was a good thing. And I don't want to be negative about it or issue like a huge cautionary tale or a word of caution. But what I'm trying to say is that, you know, the opportunities can be sometimes, especially in Canada, I find few and far in between. And so for me, there's definitely moments or periods where, um, you know, self-doubt and, you know, is this what I want to be doing? Is, you know, is this going to be the best kind of career path for me? For me, it's my convictions and knowing what I want to do and where I want to be spending my time and knowing what kinds of problems I want to be solving in the future. That's the biggest one for me was knowing that, you know, ending that compromise between art as a hobby and science as a full-time career was that I didn't want prob lab bench problems. I didn't want to be solving grant funding and that those kinds of issues and having to deal with broken lab equipment, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to solve visual problems and communication problems with that science flair, that science interest. And so identifying that for me is kind of this, you know, this background of motivation for me that, you know, when things get a little bit tough and a little bit difficult, that reminder, I think is really, really important getting into the field uh, because I think without it, it can sometimes be a little bit discouraging. I had this experience in Sweden when I'd finished my time, I was on a one-year contract. And when I finished my time, you know, the thing I learned most was that our industry is really, really niche. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really exist on an international scale. Um, I know there's some pockets of it in Europe and in some other areas, but for Sweden, 
in particular, um, they're quite an interesting culture in that what you go to school for is what you will become. <laughs> it's not like here in North America where some people can do a degree in one thing and, and do a completely different lifestyle, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like a very boxed and prescribed life over there. Hmm. And uh, as much as I loved living there and wanted to stay there and be there long-term, you know, I ran into the issue of I'm a medical illustrator and I have a background doing this, <laughs> which is not recognized. People looked at me like I had 10 heads when I explained to them what I did. And so trying to find work there was really, really difficult. And that's when I had to really circle back on that back, that background of motivation and being like, why am I in this field? What do I want to do? And I think for me, that's really kind of helped guide myself forward into bigger and better um, opportunities. Right so I think that's my, that would be my advice is to like, you know, if you're getting into this and obviously you can't know everything, right? Like you, you can't know that I'm going to go into this and I'm going to get X, Y, Z done. Um, but it's just knowing that if you're true to that motivation and true to the integrity of what it is that you want to do, I think that's the right way to, to approach it. So um, I think looking back, I'm, I'm glad that I went into BMC because I knew, uh, I think that's, that would be my, my motivating force. Right on. So I, th I think if you have that and you go into the program, right, and you want to do certain things, just if you know you have that and you know you want to follow that, I think you can make make it work. Um, in times of desperation, I don't know what the, what the what the saying is, right? But like you know, necessity is the mother of reinvention, or something like that. And so when you're faced with those moments of necessity, right, like I need to be doing this type of work, you kind of reinvent yourself, and you will you will end up finding a way to do what it is you want to do. Um, I think you just need to have that motivation. Yeah, definitely. Well, as someone who did a dissertation on the intersection of art and biology, I think <laughs> <laughs> I think you're following through pretty well. I am. Uh, that's what I want to do. <laughs> and that's it. And I'm latched on. And you'll have to pry it out of my cold, dead fingers <laughs> before I give up and look elsewhere. So, um, yeah. Right on. Yeah, man, a master's in geochemistry and astrobiology, that is that it just sounds so cool. And that definitely must have fed into your interest in data viz. I would think so because of some of the, the information and the way you described it earlier as being so text heavy, you know, this seems to be a focus in your work is a, a lot of the posts that I've seen you do. Can you tell us more about your interest in data visualization? Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to, because I think, I don't know, I've always throughout my life, no matter what institution I'm a part of, I've always felt a bit of a black sheep. Uh, and I still kind of do within, with respect to the medical illustration community, because I don't predominantly work in the medicine or healthcare space as much anymore. Now I'm primarily focused on data viz and infographics and visual communication broadly. But for me, it's that focus on science and scientific material and, and that kind of stuff. So my time with that geochemistry and astrobiology background. You're right. I think, you know, just identifying those, uh, that need and, and these very difficult and dense concepts needing some sort of visual help um, is what kind of spurred my interest in that field. What I noticed, or what I continue to notice is that there's always this balance of how much is what I'm doing 
artistic enough versus being very didactic and explanatory and kind of scientific. And so I kind of teeter that line of wanting to be this artist, but also wanting to be this like scientific person, I guess, as well. So sometimes you go through this, this limbo of like, okay, I'm doing art. I want to be, you know, artist and okay, now this is really medical. And where I'm getting to is that within my time at BMC, I started noticing that there was all this pigeonholing almost into medicine and, you know, your career afterwards would be, you know, drawing cellular landscapes all the time and biochemistry pathways and patient education materials. And maybe it's a fear of commitment. I don't know what it is, or just being super uh, interested in a variety of things that that scared me. It turned me off. And I was like, I don't want to do this. And so part of my step now towards infographics and data viz is that it's kind of opened that library of subject matters mm -hmm. to investigate and to look at. And what I really like about what I do now is that I can kind of continue being this student, you know, I can undergo this learning process, even outside of biology and medicine, you know, into physics and into chemistry and, and other topics and kind of explore those fundamentals, those concepts that you would never appreciate in your day to day life, and undergo this learning journey and then come out of it going like, okay, what are the visual stepping stones? that I can create so that when new learners enter this space and, and want to engage in this, how can I help cross that bridge? Mm. And so you're right. I think experiencing that for me in the geochemistry world is kind of what's put me to where I am now is because I love doing that process and I love creating work that hopefully um, helps other people kind of understand and explore those similar topics with this kind of visual filter in that learning process. Right on. Yeah, I, I really like how you talk about visualizing these fundamental concepts that mm -hmm. we run across so much in science. I think a great example of this is your biomass of life piece, which is so beautiful and such a powerful piece. And it's a really important concept to, to understand, you know, in biology and ecology, it's received a lot of well-deserved attention. I'd love for you to tell us a bit more about this. How did this idea come about? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for those nice words, by the way. It's been, it's been um, a huge surprise for me to see how people respond to that piece. Because again, you can't plan for, I don't know, virality or, or big response. So it's, it's a bit of a surprise that that came through. But that piece was created right now where I work at Visual Capitalist. Um, they are an infographics company. For anyone who, who doesn't know, who may be listening, um, they're an infographics company. And they're also a bit of a news company as well. Um, so the way I kind of explain them is that, you know, pr predominantly, I think they, they look at market trends and business inquiries and those kinds of things and, and basically visualize trends and data and information. But at the same time, they're also involved with other global events or global topics of interest. And so my role there as a scientific visual communications person was to take things in the media uh, predominantly science-based and how can we translate them into visual topics? Mm -hmm or visual infographics. And so that one came across my desk. I have the privilege of kind of choosing, you know, what topics to do or what's worth exploring or what's interesting. But that one was, was kind of assigned to me. They said, you know, check this out. What do you think? And um, part of my prof process for any piece is to not only figure out what message I want to share and put out there, but also look at what other messages are being shared and communicated about the same thing 
that's out there. And so maybe this is like a capitalist mindset of like looking at competition. <laughs> that's maybe the simplest way to look at it. But for me, it's wanting to make sure that if I want to create something new and impactful, maybe there's already a, a really good way to, to share this topic. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, this work, which was done by Ron uh, Milo's uh, lab at the Wiseman Institute of Science, they created this paper on the biomass of life, basically all the weight of living things on our planet. And they had a research journal put out. It created a buzz in 2018. There were some articles already written about it. And um, when I Googled it online, I wanted to see, well, what have other people done with that data? Maybe there's something out there that's already, I don't, I don't want to say perfected, but done in a way that's, you know, um, very succinct and that I don't need to stretch it beyond something like that. And so what I found was... Um, there was this beautiful Vox article um, and they had done this stacked boxed cubic arrangement mm -hmm. and it's made by Javier Zaracina, Zaracina. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. He works for USA Today as part of their visual journalists or uh, graphics team. And he created this gorgeous arrangement of just cubes. And for me, I thought that's the message, you know, mm -hmm. to appreciate the weight and the monstrosity of how much, you know, things weigh on our planet. That's the appropriate, you know, visualization tactic. Where I came in was figuring out, okay, so how can we take this and, you know, using kind of my personal philosophy or my personal branding approach was how can we elevate this now into an editorial standpoint? How can we introduce some narrative load into this visual? And so for me, it was figuring out, okay, what is the most kind of humanistic or most relatable angle? And what I decided to do was to take, you know, these cubes and incorporate and introduce animals and critters onto it. Mm -hmm. And most people, when they talked to, you know, when they wrote articles about this research, they would introduce the entirety of biomass and then focus in on humans. And I flipped it. I purposely flipped it to say, well, you know, humans really understand ourselves and animals first and foremost, right? So let's start there and then expand it outwards. And so that's part of the arrangement of that piece was to show, you know, here's everything that's identifiable that you will recognize. You know what a fish is, you know what a crab is, you know what insects are. So immediately, I think that kind of visual translation or that knowledge translation done visually is like immediate. You know, that was part of my approach to that. And um, yeah, I mean, since creating it, I was shocked. Even my team at work was, you know, blown away by the approach. To me, it just felt like the natural thing to do. And so I did it. And it's been really, really nice to see a lot of people respond so positively to it. Javier actually reached out to me. And um, oh, nice. yeah, he, he, he reached out to me and he told me that uh, he was a big fan of it. And he loved what I, how I had expanded on his kind of his work. And um, that felt really, really great. To, to hear that from him. I think he's one of the best out there. So that's a great piece. I'm really happy and proud of it. But of course, I think like most people in our field, there is this cloud of pressure of like, you know, how do we do a biomass 2.0? How do we make something else that's impactful and, and great? But, uh, you know, I don't think you can plan for those kinds of things. So yeah, fair enough. What tell us what, what's your favorite subject to illustrate? Natural history. Okay. I think the reason why I love it so much is just, you know, I think Richard Dawkins, the, the famous biologist, evolutionary biologist, says it well, that it's the greatest show on earth. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. evolution and our time on this planet and how life has evolved and what genetics are. The way I see it is like this massive fabric where everything is intertwined and so closely related and so fragile. Mm-hmm. You know, when there's missing members of our ecosystem, there's a domino effect from that. And that fragility is sometimes not captured nor appreciated. And anytime I get to do something in that field, you know, whether it's those little critters that I did for the biomass piece, or even working broadly with like genetics and that kind of anything that filters into that natural history aspect for me is super fun. I I think largely because I get to think about (laughs) what I'm drawing and what it means. And it's like, I don't know, for me, it's, I kind of get in the weeds with it, but in terms of, you know, actually enjoying creating it, the technical process, it's, it's pretty standard across all things, but it's most enjoyable when it's, uh, when it's natural history related. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about your process. I think this is something that everyone is, is really interested in, like how these pieces come together. Sure. Yeah. That's something I'm exploring doing more of, you know, even on my, like my social media feeds, I've started to curate these Twitter threads about how to, you know, what my approach was and how my design process worked for certain of my pieces. And a lot of people gravitate towards that. It's funny because I personally, <laughs> I don't know why I'm not, I don't really seek those things. I, I kind of like the, the mystery and the anonymity of like, you know, how did they make that and kind of keeping it that way. <laughs> I think it, gives people a bit of power. I don't know, but um, I'm happy. I'm happy to explain my work, my work process. So I guess it depends really on what the project is because right now full-time I'm working with infographics, but I'm also freelancing on the side with, you know, different kinds of visual or, or scientific visual projects. But I think largely first and foremost for me is always figuring out the narrative and the key communication messages, uh, which tends to be the most laborious part, you know, figuring out with your client, if it is a client, or if it's just something you want to put out on your own, you know, what is that message you want to share? Why are you sharing it? And like I mentioned earlier, it's important to know what message it is that you want to share and get out there, but also what are the competing messages that are out there? Mm -hmm. And what are they saying? And do you want to say something similar? Or do you want to distinguish yourself from that voice? Do you want to become part of that? part of those voices or do you need to combat them? I don't know if there's misinformation or anything like that. So that whole research process for me is quite laborious and it takes a lot, a lot of time. It takes sometimes more than several weeks because I tend to go down this real deep rabbit hole of information. And part of that is it's it's on purpose uh, to undergo that journey of being a new learner and someone who's approaching it for the first time and making sure that every question that I ask as a new learner on this journey, am I going to filter that back into my final piece? You know, you kind of want to have no questions asked or, you know, make sure you cover those bases as you explore. Mm. And so that takes a while and that's where it starts. And then the next thing that I do, um, you know, after that story and narrative is all figured out is to figure out what is the personality of this piece going to be? So I tend to approach a lot of my visual work from almost this branding perspective. You know, I want it to have character. I want it to be something memorable. I want it to have an attitude and a flavor. And so this is my favorite part of the, of the whole process is you get your Pinterest board up <laughs> and you just run through a bunch of keywords. And it's fun because I'm new to Pinterest and it's been a, a lot of fun exploring how, for instance, you know, a magazine photo of a beautifully decorated room with gorgeously painted wall colors can suddenly influence the palette of your visual. 
something that you would never think about, but the exposure to it through something like Pinterest is like, oh, that's the feeling I want. I want people to feel that when they look at this. So I tap into that too. You know, and that's what I mean by personality and flavor is, you know, what is the, what is the attitude of this piece going to be? And so it's kind of sourcing all my creative references and I document those. I think for almost all of my pieces, since working with Visual Capitalist, I have now dedicated mood boards, you know, for them. And so I do that. And then the next step is to figure out, okay, what parts of this story need to be visualized and what parts are going to be text-based or something else. And um, at that point, it's just a matter of doing a lot of sketching and reiteration. I think what's sometimes really difficult is that the reiterative process can't be all captured in that pre-production standpoint. Mm -hmm. Part of that reiteration comes when you actually get dirty with the work. <laughs> so I have many pieces that the final versus the first draft are wildly different. Mm -hmm. uh, despite wanting to minimize as much of that variation and that those changes as possible early on, it's just, I think, the nature of the beast of this type of work that sometimes Definitely. things change even throughout production. And so that's always hard to forecast and to predict. But you know, you try to do your best early on, and then you get into it. And then you start throwing things together. You start uh, you know, pulling your references. You start thinking, does this feel right? I'm still learning to articulate how I know what works from a technical standpoint, because a lot of the time it's going with my gut. So sometimes it's this visceral response when I look at a piece of work. I know when something is finished or when something is approaching where I want it to go based on this kind of internal reaction I get from looking at it or from experiencing it. And so I'm still trying to figure out the words to, to describe that <laughs> broadly. But that's kind of my approach when I do that as well. And so knowing when something is finished is a matter of, you know, reaching the standard that's kind of in internalized, I guess, and says, okay, this has the kind of polish and, and, you know, it, it tells this story, but also has this polish. And um, I think the hardest or not the hardest part, but the, the part that is most laborious aside from the pre-production and the research and all of that is when you're finishing a piece specifically that when I finish, it's always on the artistic and creative side because that messaging is kind of finished and, and, full, and finalized. For me, it's, it, it's more of like this artistic standpoint rather than this kind of um, objective, like, okay, you've said this, it's done. <laughs> so for me, I can get really lost in the weeds of reiterating and designing and adding more flourish. And the reason for that is because the way I have experienced science. I don't know how you want to say it. that sounds really weird, but, <laughs> but the way I've gone through, you know, my career learning and appreciating the nuances of carbon isotopes and even medical cranial nerves and all, all this, all this stuff, that nuance it, to me, it's so beautiful and gorgeous is that the work I want to do wants to glamorize it. I want to glorify it. And so I'm always trying to make sure that I put this filter on my work that is just giving it that heightened sense of like glamour or posh. <laughs> and so chasing that little bit can sometimes also take, uh, take some time. I love that description, man. I've also I've read on your, your Twitter feed, you had a great Twitter feed where you're talking about your journey. And one of the things you said that I really liked was you said one of your goals for the future is to build an identity around your approach to storytelling. I really want to hear more about this. You know, what, what discoveries have you made about your own narrative style that you want to explore further and develop? 
Um, so my approach, I think it's still developing, to be honest. So I think, I think for me, it's right now where I am with Visual Capitalist, I'm so fortunate that I've landed this opportunity to explore all of these scientific topics and try to come up with ways that visuals can help people appreciate and understand and, and just get this sense of wonder when they look at something scientific, right? And I'm still trying to figure out what sticks. So I think biomass for me was like kind of an indicator. But trying to tap back into that is a bit difficult, especially when you're working with data or topics that maybe don't lend themselves so well to making something immediately understood. You know, critters are quite easy to understand, animals and and the like. But when you get into, for instance, nuclear isotopes, I just did a piece on nuclear weaponry and explaining how a nuclear energy basically works. And that's a a lot harder to, to do. But part of my approach then is like I said, this, this glamorization almost of science, sometimes it can be so dense and difficult. And I'm just always reminded of my time in, in geochemistry of reading these papers, which were so dense and difficult. And, and just thinking like, goodness, if we could bring it into that pop sci filter and just make it beautiful and just make it so attractive and make it look like a piece of artwork where you get that double satisfaction of like, wow, this is so visually nice to look at and I can learn something from it. I think that's the main goal, the main brand I'd, I'd like to build or the main identity I'd like to have with my approach to scientific visualization. Some people have critiqued it in the sense that it's unnecessary or that it's superfluous and it's a little bit, you know, bells and whistles and, and, and stuff. But I think for a lot of people, science itself is just not interesting or it's too technical and whatnot. And part of the lure, I think, can be using those things. I think that can be a form of visual communication or, a, or visual attention. Maybe for me right now, it's wanting to explore more of that and undergo this process of figuring out, okay, for this topic, you know, whether it's isotopes or nuclear fractionation, or I don't know, natural history or something of the like, you know, what, what works, what doesn't work, what do people really like and gravitate to? And, and then, you know, hopefully building a formula of some kind that, you know, can maybe continue to be of interest to a lot of people. I'm realizing now as I talk about this, that maybe my goals are a little bit different than what medical illustrators are used to, predominantly because right now where I'm working is more news media focused. And a lot of the return that you're suddenly interested in is your click ratios and how much people are engaged with your content. And it's very much this like digital content creator kind of space. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think maybe most medical illustrators aren't, this is a guess on my end, but maybe aren't tapped into that as much, you know, you're supporting kind of research institutions and there's not really a preoccupation with that. So my line of work is also different in that sense in that, you know, my audience is broader. It's not really defined. It's very generalized. And so the ROI, I guess, is a little bit different as well. And so I think that also changes the approach. And maybe that's why I have this interest in kind of glamorizing or making science look beautiful and interesting and exciting. Because I think it is, and I want people to see it the way that I see it. Right on. That's interesting. You mentioned working in sort of like a different space or a different market. How does that work in terms of images being reshared or reused? I mean, have you ever had any issues with, you know, what you'd consider to be theft or infringement? Have you ever had any, any bad encounters or anything like that? I've had a few bumps. Mm-hmm. But nothing major. Mm-hmm. So when I say a few bumps, I mean, you know, maybe someone takes work and they share it, but I do investigate in touch and kind of explain. I think a lot of people might have experienced or have seen, you know, those kinds of posts or Twitter feeds where it's people being unagreeable and difficult with wanting to take work down mm-hmm. and people should be thankful that they're getting exposure, et cetera. And I've never had that yet <laughs> or anything. So I don't know how to navigate those things, but 
But in terms of people infringing, not so much. I think part of it too is that it's the nature of the beast of the internet. Yeah. yeah. And so when I do freelance work for, let's say, institutions or research papers, the infringements I don't think is really there because there's not a lot of sharing or reproducibility that's of interest. Mm-hmm. But you know, sometimes you do see in that general pop side, broader audience that sometimes I'll be scrolling Reddit and I see my posts up there and it's not really infringement, but it's like, you know, is the attribution there? Is is my work credited? And sometimes it's not, and I'll have to do some due diligence there, but, and that's fine, but that happens. And I don't think there's a way to control that. Yeah. I try to look at it positively and, and, and say like, wow, it's flattering that someone really liked it and they wanted to post it and share it out there. And, uh, I think that's really, really nice. Yeah. It it does kind of irk me though, when I see images reshared without any attribution, you know, they don't, they don't say who, who made this and it really just kind of flies in the face of this work for exposure bit that we're always fed all the time. It's like, well, if if this work is going to really give me exposure, then why is my name never attached to it when it's shared? Right. That, I don't know. That just always gets me, but I, I try to be polite. Like if I see stuff being shared online on Reddit or LinkedIn or something, I try to not say like, hey, you took this or, you, you know, you didn't give credit. I try to instead say like, oh, hey, yeah, this is a great image by this artist who I happen to know by name because I kind of know who's like putting this stuff out. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'll just say, oh, hey, great piece. Thanks for sharing that piece from blank. Right. You know, and then and then at that person, you know, in the in the post so that they get an opportunity to chime in on the conversation. I don't know. Do you have any like strategies or anything like that? Best practices? The best practice that I could give if you're working with clients is that is to be very upfront with where you want your work to go. Mm. When I started out freelancing, that was really hard because it was so exciting to get any type of work. And you almost want to just say yes to everything that a client puts forth because you're starting out, you want the success of like getting the deal and making some money and getting a portfolio going and that kind of thing. And maybe that's okay. You know, I've done that. That's maybe that's normal. But now what I tend to do is to be extremely, extremely um, meticulous about where is this piece going to go? How is it going to be managed? How will it be controlled? And I'll be honest, I've lost deals because I was maybe a little bit too strict with that. But at the end of the day, you also have to think about what kind of clients you want to work for and what clients you want to invite in. And if there's people who are not going to meet you on what you want, then they're also just maybe not for you, whatever the price tag or the cost of that deal was, right? I think that's a personal you know, decision. There are some jobs that sometimes you have to take and swallow and maybe you're not happy with, but the opportunity is good or there's a cost trade benefit elsewhere. But, but for me to avoid that and not saying that you should accept infringement or copyright right, loss right. or anything like that. that, that's not my point. Now I kind of went off a little bit on just you know, how to market yourself and, and clients. But in terms of copyright, like just to be very vigilant about what it is you want and get that in writing. And once you have that in writing and, you know, you're very expressive of the fact that these are the rules and this is, you know, needs to be followed. I think a lot of people will respect that. And from all the client projects I've had, I've had no issues with that. That's been respected. It's been very straightforward and everyone's happy and that's great. And the ones that fell through, you know, some of the contracts that I've lost, that's fine. They weren't meant to be. It didn't work out. Sure. Sometimes you can get upset, like, oh, maybe I lost a you know, really good paycheck there or something, but you also don't know what problems you could have avoided mm-hmm. down the line. And so maybe that's a good thing as well. For sure. The other thing, the other, the flip side outside of freelance life and just this kind of, uh, you know, generalized artwork, I guess that I make, for instance, that I post on Twitter or 
Instagram, I try to watermark my work a little bit in the background so that it's difficult to, you know, erase or, or to to not have my name somehow on it, but that's always difficult. I don't know if there's any tactics or, you know, systems out there that can uh, mitigate that. Like I said, I think maybe it's just the nature of the beast of things being on the net and that you just kind of cross your fingers and hope it doesn't get copied and, and shared or infringed. And if it does, then you, you act on it, kind of cross that bridge when you get there, so to speak. But yeah, fair enough. It's tough. It's tough to navigate being a, an, an artist, a creator in the digital space and and that kind of stuff. And, you know, even the systems that are hoping to, to make it better, uh, like blockchain technology and NFTs and all of that, you know, even those arenas now are being dominated with theft and copyright infringement and, right. and stuff. And I think that for me also proved that even with these possible solutions or what people are touting as possible solutions, that there's still pit- pitfalls in, in solving that issue. And so I think it's a matter of how, how do we fix it? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. I was um, happy to see also that the community is also quite responsive, especially within the medical illustration community. It was very happy to support people that have copyright infringement. I'm thinking about the recent event that's I think uh, gone on with the medical illustration community of the um, the black fetus. Mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know if you're aware. Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just, I don't want to get too much into it because I think it's a bit of a sad story, but I think what was really nice about it was to see how the medical illustration community kind of banded together a little bit mm-hmm. and would actually articulate, you know, why it's wrong and why it's infringement and why it's not a, you know, a really a good case. And just the conversations that have come from that, I think have been extremely helpful. And I think as much as we want to protect our own work, I think maybe it is also important to protect those that we know or our industry and that kind of stuff as well. So it's also nice to see that kind of out there too. And I hope that, you know, if I see something that's wrong or that's been infringed upon and whatnot, that, you know, I would call it out and that others would do it for me too. Yeah, it is a sometimes a difficult line to walk. I think in this particular instance, for me, I did put out something in one of my previous podcasts, sort of just talking about a little bit of the ownership and copyright and I wanted to be careful because I didn't want to come out like, you know, attacking anyone because I just think that's a negative voice, right? I didn't want to be a voice of negativity. I didn't want to Absolutely. be attacking anyone. But at the same time, I wanted to say, look, we make mistakes, but then when we make that mistake, you know, we should learn from it. And it's important to understand why. And it's important that, you know, we go through our work with a sense of integrity because that's how we're going to end up producing better work. That's going to end up helping more people. I completely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk a, a little bit about technology um, because obviously social media has been a big theme in, in the conversation that we've been touching on here and technology in all the apps that we use. I mean, mm-hmm. our industries, it's just a huge part of our lives. What is the biggest change you've noticed over the course of your career in terms of technology? Ooh, that's a great question. There's one conversation I think about a lot when I notice technological advancements happening. So what I mean by that is like, I'll look on Twitter and I'll see these threads about, first of all, these these individuals are insane. And I think they're so superhuman. Or they'll be like, I developed this coded thing in Blender that you can now use this procedural algorithm to generate this thing. 
Mm -hmm. uh, for, so for instance, one user had generated like some sort of program that would create castle walls by just drawing lines or something oh, like that. Okay. And you could adjust the height. And I'm thinking, who is this person <laughs> that did this? This is insane. And it's so technologically advanced. And, you know, I don't even understand how you create this kind of stuff. And, and then I just leave it, leave it there. Don't bother exploring. <laughs> yeah. I've, that, I've like... seen similar ones for like trees or foliage growth. Yeah. Yeah. And just anything like that, you know, and there's even zanier and crazier ones, but anyway, so I see these things and I'm thinking, wow, technology is moving so quickly. We're being so outpaced. It's going like, how do you keep up with this? And I remember having a conversation with Michael Corrin at BMC when I was there and I was asking for career advice at the time, you know, what would you tell me looking back? And he, you know, admitted that he was a generalist, that he had spread himself out across multiple fields. And his advice to me was to stick to one thing and just get really good at it and just keep up to date in that one field because trying to keep up elsewhere, it's going to make you, oh, what's that saying again? Isn't it jack of all trades, master of none? Mm -hmm. Is that how it goes? Something like that. And I think that was basically what he was trying to say. And so if I'm being honest, when I see techno technological advancement <laughs> and seeing what people are doing, for instance, the New York Times and their interactive uh, visual storytelling, I'm not sure if you're familiar with sometimes what they do. Sometimes it's locked behind a paywall. Mm but they create these gorgeous visual stories uh, of things that are going on in the news. They recently put out a, a beautiful piece about uh, the war in Ukraine, mm. what's going on with Kyiv. But, you know, when you see those things and you're thinking like, oh my goodness, how am I going to get, you know, how am I going to get to that level and, and whatnot? And I don't know. I think for me, it's just realizing that what I'm doing, that's maybe outside of that, that's just static and visual and illustration based also has value and to just kind of focus on getting really, really, good at that one thing and just kind of I don't want to say I'm ignoring the technolo technological advancement but I think for right now I'm just trying to kind of like not uh, get into a spiral of, of panic <laughs> over <laughs> over feeling like you need to keep up with it um, mm -hmm. you know or that you need to be creating work at a certain level or or whatnot I think that can be a good motivator too mm -hmm. but one of the things I've been trying to unlearn over the past few years is that anxiety shouldn't have to be a productive force Mm. or I shouldn't rely on anxiety as a productive force. And so part of my strategy is to kind of ignore technological advancement a little bit. So that's one opinion I have on it. The other opinion I have on technology and, and you know using it, what I would like to see and something that I'm slowly starting to explore is introducing movement and animation into the infographics that I create. And so, you know, I think it's fun that we have these static visuals and these like scrolly telling, I, I like to call them scrolly, or I guess they're called that, I don't know, <laughs> scrolly telling experiences. Um, but I'm always thinking like, okay, what if we found ways to show process actually happening? And a fantastic example of someone who is doing this or has done this is Eleanor Lutz. Uh, at the New York Times. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. She used to be on Twitter. And she, yeah, she's no longer on Twitter. And she gave a talk recently at one of the BMC um, speaking events, I think a year or maybe two years ago now. Okay. And she created infographics. She is a PhD. Oh, I don't, I'm not 100% sure, but I know she's a trained scientist. Uh, and she created visuals throughout her entire PhD career. And her website, tabletopwhale.com, is filled with beautiful, I mean, be like the, the level that I aspire to be. Like if I had to have like a, a mentor or someone to look up to, it's definitely Eleanor. And the, the work that she does and how she visualizes things. Um, but she also, in some of her illustrations, has incorporated animation and these looping GIFs 
-hmm. all baked into this one nice uh, one-stop shop infographic. And that to me is really exciting. That to me is like, okay, the next step and what comes next and then what comes next kind of thing. And I would really like to kind of explore more of that and how do we do that? So I'm hoping that with this, you know, technological advancements and as we're moving forward that we can uh, incorporate some of those things. Unfortunately, a lot of the things that we use like Twitter or Instagram or even websites, whether it's WordPress or Wix or whatever kind of platform you're using, they have limitations to supporting these. Mm-hmm. And so it's trying to figure out, for me, it's really hard figuring out what kind of products you would need or what kind of support you would need to create the vision it is that you have in your mind. So what I mean by that is, you know, to make a visual infographic, sorry, an animated infographic, there's limitations on how big the file size can be, or should you put 3D models in? Should it be flat? Should it be an MP4? Like all of these kinds of considerations that to me, honestly, are I'm really not familiar with, and I don't know, I haven't explored enough. It can be very, very daunting, especially if you're not a developer or someone who's, you know, used to, I don't even know if it's backend or front end, or if it's a mixture of both, but um, that kind of stuff can be a little bit daunting too. So, so I'm excited about that because that's something I'd like to continue exploring and seeing, you know, how can we take that and continue to elevate it and push it even further, but we'll see, we'll, we'll see what, what's possible. It's a work in progress. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) One work in progress that I'm just so thrilled to always be getting updates on is uh, your social media feeds, uh, because I love the way that you cater your Twitter and your LinkedIn and Instagram. You really know how to get the best out of each of those platforms, I feel. Oh, thank you. That's actually really nice to hear because I don't know what I'm doing on those things. Well, you use them differently. You know, you're not just copy pasting the same post onto each platform. You're, you're using the platforms differently based on their strengths. So I'd really like to hear, you know, how's your approach to social media? Can you talk about maybe your different strategies for these different platforms? Oh, I wish I had a really nice answer for this, but I, I don't. My answer, like, to be honest, the way I approach it is that you know, when sometimes you see someone post something on Instagram and they post it on Twitter and they post it elsewhere and it's the same thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe I'm too judgmental, but in my mind, I'm like, oh, it's an algorithm. Like I yeah. just generated it. And so I kind of lose that personality. And so for me, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to post on LinkedIn. I'm going to write how I would write it to LinkedIn. I think part of it is also because of what each platform offers. So for instance, LinkedIn, you can write a post that's like however long you want it to be. I think, I don't know if there's a word cap, but Twitter, there is a word cap. Right. And so the way you speak on Twitter is different because you have to have very succinct tweets, you know, micro messages. And so the way I structure a conversation for Twitter is obviously going to be different than the, than the way I structure a conversation for, let's say LinkedIn or Instagram. The trouble I'm finding with that is that it's kind of hard to have a consistent voice. Like I noticed on Instagram, I'm a little bit more relaxed and maybe sound a little bit more irreverent. And then something on LinkedIn, because it, I don't know, as a professional network, it's maybe a little bit more serious. So my tone maybe changes a little bit. I'm not sure. Got to have the collared shirt in the profile pic on LinkedIn. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, you're going to talk about your work in a little bit more you know, esteemed way, I guess, (laughs) but, um, so it's a little bit more fun. And then, yeah. And on Instagram, you have zoom in shots and that kind of thing and and filters and it's, you know, it's the sexier side of of what it is that you're doing. But, um, I, I don't know. I think I approach what I'm going to write with that in mind. And I think maybe that kind of helped structure what it is I'm going to be saying and how I'm going to say it. 
to be honest, again, it's still a work in progress. I, I think I'm starting to develop, like I said, trying to develop this identity or this brand. I don't know what the right word is, but just to get people to know that I exist and I'm doing this type of work and that I love and I'm grateful for doing this type of work and kind of just seeing what happens. If nothing happens, great. If something happens, also great. And that's kind of my approach. Right on. You know, we touched on this a little bit there, professionalism. When you look at the different platforms and you think about how you're projecting yourself out there for people to get a sense of who you are, what does professionalism look like to you? Just now when you were describing, you know, these social media landscapes and when we engage with people, it's funny, I've never, or I can't actively think of a moment where I saw something on Twitter or, or on social media and thought that's a professional post. I think a large part of professionalism is being in person or that kind of human contact, or even just being on a Zoom conversation like this. So I think there might be something missing for me anyway, when I look online at something that's that would define someone as professional. I don't know. I, I think what I'm trying to say is that it's, it's hard for me to understand it in that capacity. Mm. But in the real world, like if I go to a conference or a meeting with clients or that kind of thing, I think it's easier to kind of get a sense of what is professional. Maybe it's how people speak or how they carry themselves or something like that. But one quality that I've been really seeking or looking out for or trying to identify. And I think to me is a really strong example of professionalism. It's something I think is underappreciated and maybe not noticed, but compassion. Mm. And what I mean by compassion is not in being kind. I think that's different, but compassion in the sense of responding to people's humanity. So I think growing up for me, like professionalism, I thought was like, you know that movie, um, Devil Wears Prada? Yes. Uh, Meryl Streep's character, Miranda Priestly. Mm-hmm. Like to me, she was the <laughs> she was the the icon of um, professionalism. You know, like this cold, just so serious about the work. It was always about the work and the work came first and that was kind of it. To me, that was like growing up like, yeah, she's professional, great. But I think when that started to change was when, you know, I started noticing certain individuals and the way that they would respect their own work with how they treated other people. So one example, just off the top, this is totally off the top of my head, but it was like, I was watching um, years ago, Lady Gaga had a documentary about herself or something. And on the surface, she's like this whimsical, you know, kind of irreverent, wacky pop star. And I guess the the connotation of professionalism is like a doctor, a lawyer and a suit and tie and button colored shirt. And here you have this pop star who's flaunting about. But what I noticed was that the way she spoke to her staff and the people supporting her while they were discussing like, you know, I'm going to wear this giant crazy thing, which seems silly and unprofessional. The way she spoke to people and identified like, you know, her teammates and was respectful and was responding to the humanity. If someone had a challenge or a difficulty or maybe a weakness that they couldn't bring on board to the t- or whatever. To me, that, that stuck with me because I thought, okay, there's this work that they're doing and, and maybe we can, we're judgmental on the surface of what it is that they're producing, but just the way that they communicated and spoke and acted as a leader and a supporter, to me, I thought was really indicative of professionalism. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a quality that's maybe not appreciated or respected. And I'm, I'm starting to see it more as I'm getting older and interacting with individuals who are in their careers for a long amount of time, that professionalism is really about how you approach people and talk to people based on the experience that they come to you with. And I think the greatest instances of professionalism for me, for instance, this isn't super public, but I'm deaf in one ear. And so Mm. people who acknowledge that, let's say when I talk to them, to me, that's that kind of compassion 
and not compassion in the sense that they're being kind to me or that they're, you know, being um, offering me leverage, but just the acknowledgement or the visibility of that, you know, it shows that they're thinking about you and how they're involving you and what you mean to them in the product and what, the, what it is that they're doing and crafting. For me, that's something I've started to recognize more and try to seek out more and also practice more as I work with people. And I think that's a huge component to professionalism. Wow. That's a great answer, man. I love that. What are some other things you've learned from the work that you do? Important lessons, you know, life lessons that you've learned. Oh, I think I alluded to one, which was that anxiety shouldn't be a productive force. I think that's a huge one. I think for me, that's a huge one because I think growing up, I cultivated a, a tactic of like a procrastination because I needed to feel the anxiety and the pressure in order to perform, to do something. And separating myself from that or unlearning that is crucial when you're in an industry that's concerned with the 24 hours news cycle or having fast turnarounds, or suddenly you're in an environment where you need to produce stuff that's on a timeline. So you kind of can't wait for those <laughs> moments of hard pressure and stuff. So for me, it's been an ongoing process of separating anxiety from being present when doing work. And that's still a work. It's a work in progress. It's still difficult to manage, but I think that's a huge thing I've learned with my work. The other thing I'm going to say too, with my work is a, a saying I read years ago, and it, it still, I think applies is that sometimes the decision to fall is harder than the fall itself. Mm. And that's like the negative maybe version when you're doing something difficult, but I'm also thinking about it in terms of, okay, sometimes the decision to cut something out of what it is you're working on or to, you know, the decision to say, okay, we can't include this. There's not enough time or we, it's just not working. Sometimes just making that decision is harder than actually omitting or adding or whatever the case may be. Sometimes just agreeing to it is sometimes really difficult. And so I find that when I'm compromising with myself on the stories I'm trying to tell and the artwork I'm trying to create, that comes up a lot where I need to kind of just face it on and say, okay, this isn't working or, okay, it really needs to have this component inside this narrative. Uh, let's go with it. And then you kind of have to move forward. Wow. But I can get caught up in that. So that, that's tough. <laughs> you totally just reminded me of this book. I don't know if you ever heard of it or read it. It's called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. I have not. Oh, it's... oh, hang on. Someone did mention this to me. I just never read it. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Check it out because yeah, you sort of alluded to some of the concepts he covers in there. He talks about and really personifies this sense of resistance. And he talks about it a lot in the book and he always uses a capital R when he mentions it. And he, so he talks about, you know, how resistance is something that just is always plaguing, you know, an artistic endeavor. And it's just like this constant battle you have to be fighting is, you know, the, the resistance to get started, the resistance to, you know, try and experiment with this new idea that seems risky. Right. And yeah, so it, it kind of seemed like you touched upon that there. I'm curious, you know, do you have any recommendations for books or any resources that, you know, have, have been uh, a big influence for you? Well, first, that's awesome about that book, The War of Art. I'm going to have to check it out. Um, that whole dialogue of resistance, I think every artist can kind of respond to. I definitely feel like that's part of this, the reiterative nature of design and, and what it is that we do. And I, I think that's probably where that where that lies or where it exists. But yeah, thanks for that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check that out. In terms of book recommendations, you know, I'm not a huge reader or not a huge reader anymore, I should say. I used to read a lot as a child and then I'll be honest, my first master's reading journal articles totally <laughs> killed the oh, joy no. of reading. It just did because you would go to bed every night and read three or four science papers and there was no time for reading for pleasure. And so I've, I've never been able to knock back into it. But there are some books that I pick up here and there and I'll, I'll read and then 
you know, not read for a while. Uh, but one of my favorite ones is the National Geographic Compendium of Infographics. They have this great, super thick book on infographics, and um, and it's it's beautifully organized. It's got some beautiful contributions from many different artists. It's where I've discovered a lot of artists that are in the field or have contributed to the fields that are incredible. Shizuka Aoki actually has a few pieces in there, I believe. Nice. Uh, her tuna, I think her tu it's tuna fish. I can't remember, but it's a fish spread. Uh, it's beautiful. And it's actually in, in that book as well. That's a favorite. That's one I keep returning to because it's just filled with such beautifully crafted visuals and such engaging narratives about, okay, bias, natural history, <laughs> but, but still really, really great, really great work. So that's one I turn to. Any other book recommendations? You know, off the top of my head, I, I can't think of any. I tend to gravitate more towards like tutorials okay. um, or YouTube videos or online resources for what people are up to and what they're doing. And then on the flip side, what I also tend to do is seek inspiration from things that are not even related to science or the work that we do and see how we can infuse some of the cool factor from that in, into what I'm doing. So you know how before I was mentioning with comics, how Shelley was teaching us, you know, here's the skeleton of a comic, here's the formula, and here's the little bits of the formula you can change and adapt. I really respond to that across all forms of media. And it's something I try to do even with my own work. And so the last book I did read, which was a summer ago, was World War Z. And I don't know if you've read that book or, or know about it, but um, I haven't had a movie a few years ago. It's basically, it's a, a fiction about a zombie invasion that, uh, that attacks earth. It's completely different from the Hollywood film. Oh. Um, but what this book does is that each chapter is an interview with uh, an individual who has survived the zombie apocalypse. Oh, okay. And what's cool is that it, um, you know, goes through all of these scenarios that I would never think to think about, or that I would never appreciate, you know, how would how would like the Germans respond to a zombie invasion? And what did all the dogs in the world do during the zombie invasion? And that kind of, you know, that kind of angle, that perspective, that change in the formula, to me was really exciting. Hmm. So things like that, I really respond to and, and really get me excited. And I try to think like, okay, what, you know, what can we do? Um, visually or, or somehow change the visual script there. Um, but in terms of other inspiration, you know, a big one for me is like um, music, but, but not sonically. So there's a group of artists I love who merge both. They do visual and audio together, like audio visual projects. What's cool about them is that they create these worlds or these universes that have these feelings or these emotions or personalities and brands, let's say. That I think for me cycles back into that preoccupation of, okay, when I'm making a science piece or an infographic, what kind of flavor do I want to give it? And so I'm always trying to, trying to look at those groups sometimes to see what they're doing because they're creating a work based on that brand that's attractive. You know, it doesn't, it, it's not about the science or the technicality of it. It's just engaging and interesting. And so I'm trying to borrow some aspects from that. So that's another example. One of my favorites is a, is a Swedish duo slash also single performer. Her name is Yona Lee, and she creates audiovisual albums. And like, each song is a chapter, but the storytelling is, and the kind of that, that Scandinavian minimalism, everything is simple, clean, and interesting. Like it, it's soaked in that kind of uh, flavor. And it, to me, that's inspiring because they've created this brand or this attitude, this universe that's kind of focused on, on that 
aspect. And I, I gravitate to that as well. And so for me, when I create infographics or create visuals, especially for broader audiences and that pop sci filter, I'm thinking about those kinds of things and how to inject some kind of not similarity, but just, you know, they've approached it in a certain lens or in a certain standpoint. And I try to think of that as well. So that's one example. Another Swedish artist, Fever Ray, um, also has very unique visual approach as well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Those are just like two big ones off the top of my head. Cool. Right on, man. What kind of qualities do you think people will want to cultivate? to stay competitive or even just relevant in our field. You know, we talked earlier about the competitive nature and difficulty and kind of getting your grips on the, you know, the career. Yeah. What kind of qualities or attributes do you think people will have to cultivate? It's, it's tricky because obviously we don't know what the future is going to hold. Right. And I think it also depends on what arena you're in. If you're maybe in the publications world where you're supporting researchers and, you know, the kind of skills and qualities you need for that are, are going to be different than if you're in the social media content creator, evergreen space as well. But I don't know, maybe I will fall back on my previous answer a little bit here too, of, of just having that persistence and that motivation. This isn't a job where you are a project manager and you can be a project manager in many different places, right? But a medical illustrator doesn't really have that luxury of just saying, hey, I'm going <laughs> to just go work down the street at another studio that doesn't usually exist. So for me, it's just, I'm thinking about the, the qualities you'll need to have are probably the persistence to keep going when things kind of get rough and things do get rough. Life is ups and downs, right? And so there's going to be periods where things get rough and difficult and you'll question what it is you're doing. Is this what you want to be doing? Was this the right decision? Is this where you want to go forward? And I think having that quality of just that motivation, that persistence, that this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be doing. I think that's what's going to help people in this career. Yeah. I, I think that's probably a huge one. I don't know if that will change. Maybe, maybe things will open up for us in the future for visual communicators, you know, as things become more digitally dependent and we get into an increasingly digital world. Uh, maybe we won't have to worry about those things, but, but I think it's probably a good thing to have because that, that perseverance, that persistence, I think is probably going to be key to a lot of success for people who want to have lasting impressions and lasting careers um, in this field. Yeah. Oh, I definitely agree. I think one of the things that's come up a lot in discussions when we talk about the future of the field, and especially because we're all working in a digital space, right, is, you know, the effect of what AI is going to have. Has this been anything you've uh, picked up on? Or do you have any uh, ideas about how AI is going to affect our industry? I Truthfully, I don't. I'm this is maybe the part where I admit I'm a little bit <laughs> maybe traditionalist in that a lot of the new tech stuff kind of disinterests me in terms of where we're going with metaverse and AI and um, AR and VR. It's, it's interesting for me. I am wildly ignorant about a lot of the capabilities and where they're going to go and what we can do and how it will affect some things. And, and maybe that's a shortcoming. Maybe I should be a little bit more aware of how my career possibly this industry might change, but it's, there yeah, could be a, uh, there could be a juicy data viz project in the, <laughs> yeah, there, there might be one there. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's a way to tell that, tell a story about that somehow, but um, I'm really not sure. I think for some of the, 
I don't want to say peripheral careers, but, you know, careers that are, well, they would be peripheral to me, for instance, like a 3D animator, right? I think they're quite integral to the medical illustration community. But where I do get maybe concerned is when you see these um, headlines about how there's new programs being made where you can create full 3D models out of, you know, increasingly sophisticated stereo photogrammetric uh, algorithms or, or cameras or whatnot. And I kind of renders, haha, renders, <laughs> um, <laughs> their, their positions a little bit obsolete, right? And uh, I think that threat's always, I don't know, it could be performative or, or just uh, sensationalized. But, um, but I'm curious if AI and, you know, a lot of that digitization of stuff can, um, how it would impact people like medical illustrators or uh, 3D animators, medical animators and, and the like. So, I'm curious about it. I don't know if concern is the right word. Maybe curious about it. Um, because I think there's always going to be a way for humans to be around and they'll need to supervise and manage and somehow control those things. But it is a question of how how we'll respond to it if it arrives. But yeah, yeah largely, I'm, I'm not sure. Hmm. Do you have any thoughts on how we might be able to nurture the best case scenario? How can we sort of move towards the most ideal outcome when it comes to like AI and yeah. I'm curious. What do you think is the best case scenario? I mean, I'm flipping it back on you because I, I can't even picture a best case scenario. I can maybe guess how we get to one, but well, I don't I know think, what. Yeah. I think artists just continuing to learn how to keep asking more of the tools and not mm. let the tools dictate, because that's one thing I notice a lot in 3D where I, I spend a lot of the, my professional work is all in kind of 3D tools. And I'll watch a lot of these awesome tutorials on how to do this new stuff. But I noticed that the end product that they are showing off, this really cool visual, is usually a direct uh, result of what that tool can do that was used to make it, if that, if that makes sense. So it's sort of like, you know, they add this new motion graphic uh, volume builder or something in Cinema 4D, right? And so they show mm -hmm. like a, you know, a really cool, you know, music video kind of MoGraph shot, but it's like a direct result of what that tool can do, as opposed to a person asking a question and saying like, I really want to do this effect, like what tools would I use to do this? And can we like make a new tool that does this very specifically and really well? And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of that, which to this day, this is a struggle we've had for years, years in, in medical animation is how do you tie a knot in 3D? How do you just have a, hmm. a, a little a thread or a string and how do you tie a knot with it? It is crazy hard to do that because you either do like a blend shape or a pose morph sort of setup where you have these different keyframe points that you're kind of mm -hmm. animating between, which takes you know, a pretty long time to set up, or you're trying to do it with dynamics, which can also just have a lot of trial and error to have that, you know, happen. I haven't seen a really good solution to that problem even today yet, you know, and uh, it's interesting that you brought up photogrammetry because that's an area I've been exploring quite a bit, uh, especially in regards to surgery. And what's really mm -hmm. interesting is that the best examples I've come up with of, you know, just absolutely photorealistic depictions of, you know, a surgical specimen, I'm showing this to surgeons. And a lot of times they want me to simplify it. They want me to like, you know, they're like, ah, it, it looks too messy. People can't really tell the difference between the structures. And they actually want us to take it back towards like the style of videos we've been doing where everything is color coded and, you know, kind of uh, less photorealistic, but you know, it still has like a 3d 
realism in the sense that there's nice soft lighting and shadows on it. But right. so I think there, there really is a value in simplification and breaking things down. And that is where we come in and we sort of help the viewer to dissect and break down this overwhelming amount of information into the most succinct, important bits and parts, right? You're right. Yeah, you're right. The example, like I come across that a lot. I remember even before I went to um, BMC, someone had asked me like, well, why, why would you go do that? Can we just take pictures of, <laughs> you know? And the example I always return to is like, okay, but when you look at a map, you're not looking at a satellite image of where it is you need to go. You know, it's been stripped down and the roads that you need to take are kind of highlighted and emphasized. And that kind of gets people to be quiet really, really fast. They go, oh yeah, okay, like that's, that. that makes sense. So, so I think you're right. I think, you know, when we're creating these, thinking about the future and creating these tools, yeah, I think it's going to be important that, that that human touch is always going to be necessary. That kind of human filter. I don't know if artificial intelligence will ever be able to mimic that. I do have questions about maybe if artificial intelligence picks up patterns on what humans prefer mm -hmm. and then starts compiling that, that would be interesting. I'd be curious to know if that is successful. If a robot or an AI decided that, you know, humans don't like realistic uh, 3D models, they want these kind of simplified ones. And so that's what it spits out or that's what it renders or whatever the, the function is that I'm curious to know what that looks like. But um, yeah, I, 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 I'm really curious about what the future with AI is going to look like if it um, really enters our field and uh, what it can do. I know that, you know, my time with Invivo, it was really interesting seeing some people run automation, like from the developer standpoint. I think it's less of a medical thing and more of a, in, like architecture, infrastructure, uh, when you're designing an app and, and these kinds of things where you would have automated scripts and people would use auto automation to do meticulous busy work, I guess you would call it. That's, it's interesting to me, but I, I truthfully don't know much about it and how, how, how it works or what it's going to look like for the future. I'm curious. Well, well, my hope is, I guess I could summarize it with one word, symbiosis. Oh, nice. Symbiotic relationship. <laughs> that's, that's the hope that I have. We're going to be like uh, remoras and sharks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you, what's something you're looking forward to in the next few months? Yeah, time off. Oh, <laughs> right on. Honest, okay. If I'm being honest, um, or or not time off, I should say, I should say more like catching a break a little bit. This winter, particularly for me, was exceptionally busy. Mm. Um, I have never worked as hard as I have this past winter, and I don't know if the returns are going to be as great as I would want. Just in terms of like fulfillment, and you know, did I really want to be busy with those things? So for me, the next little while, I'm looking forward to just kind of catching a break a little bit and um, not working so much. It's so easy during this COVID era to kind of sequester yourself into working behind the screen full time and, and kind of detach from it. So I think that's one huge thing I'm looking forward to now. I finished a series of long standing projects in the last little bit, especially this week. So it's going to be nice to kind of not have to worry about owing my time elsewhere. So I think that's first and foremost. And the other thing I'd like to do is actually create some more creative projects that are a little bit outside of what I do day to day. Okay. And just explore a little bit more creatively on, you know, maybe what the next steps in my personal evolution is going to be. 
every year my aunt and I get together and we create these uh those Ukrainian Easter eggs oh yeah the, yeah, we and uh, I'm not Ukrainian. We're not Ukrainian, and uh, uh, but we picked up on it. My aunt is is very creative, uh, very artsy fartsy, <laughs> and uh, so we get together and we've been doing it for over a decade now. And oh, wow. uh, what we started this year actually was egg carving, eggshell carving. Oh, whoa! So we've invested in the tools and started to learn that. And I only had I think one weekend this year to do that. And it was really enjoyable, a lot of fun and not as hard as, as it may seem. Eggs are really durable Oh, right. um, when okay. they're empty, when they're empty. I okay. think when you have the weight of something inside, you drop it, it breaks. But mm-hmm. uh, once they've been blown out, they've, uh, they're quite impressively sturdy. Wow. So, um, so that's a project that's on my mind that I'm really excited <laughs> to move forward with. And I'm sure I will find a way to incorporate something scientific into it and We'll see if, uh, I don't know, people might respond to that. <laughs> That'd be kind of a, a fun little, a fun little project. Do you have a, uh, a favorite fun fact about science or biology or medicine? I don't know if it's a, well, I guess it is a fact, but I love paradoxes, especially mm, okay. like the scientific paradoxes. So the one that I always, every few months, I always go down the Wikipedia rabbit hole and whatnot is the uh, wave particle paradox mm. or Schrodinger's cat. And um, that one for me just always, always boggles my mind. I don't know if I should explain it to anyone. Yeah, yeah. Anyone's listening. Essentially, it's that for some bizarre reason, the behavior of a particle changes whether it's being looked at or not looked at. And it's a crazy phenomenon that scientists to this day can still not understand what it means that the way that a particle should behave would change just because a human being has looked at it in a certain way. Like what, what is the system that's influencing that? So Schrodinger's cat, which is the pop sci version of that, and you hear it all the time in in pop culture is, you know, if you had a box and you had, let's say some type of radioactive poison inside of it, or some, some, something that would kill the cat and you put the cat into that box and you close the lid on that box and you can't see that cat is that cat dead or alive? Well, you don't know until you open the box and check if that radioactive thing has killed it or not. The argument is that until that box is open, it is both dead and alive because the observation, like you would in the situation of a, of a particle, depends on the observation. Mm-hmm. So Schrodinger's cat isn't saying that the cat is actually dead and alive at the same time. It's just outlining the absurdity of what particles are doing under observation. It would make no sense that a cat should be both dead and alive in a box. So why is it that the particle behaves differently when we're looking at it or not? And what are the questions that come out of that when we're looking or observing other uh, measurements that we make of the world? Mm-hmm. How do we know that the sky is really blue or, or anything like that? It just, it's for me, I think it's thrilling because it's right on that border between like logic and magic or science and magic, I guess. And there's, there's just something like tantalizing about it. <laughs> so, so I think that's probably my favorite one. And I hope in my, in, you know, in our lifetimes, we get to uncover a little bit more about it. I think it's super exciting. Cool. All right. Well, so is there uh, anything you'd like to promote uh, or anyone you want to give a shout out to? I'll do a shameless plug. (laughs) I'll shamelessly plug, you know, my, my socials and the kind of work that I'm doing. So I work with visual capitalist. You can find them at visualcapitalist.com or you can find them at Twitter visual cap. 
I think also Instagram, it's visual cap. They have all their socials on their website, but I'm in this kind of new spot of cultivating and growing this kind of scientific angle for it. So it's still in its infancy. I think I haven't been there a year yet. So that's kind of growing. So keep an eye out there. And I can also be found on most of these social media platforms. So Instagram, you can find me at Artsize Studios. So Artsize Studios is the name of my freelance studio or my body of work, artsizestudios.com. You can find me at Twitter, also at Artsize Studios. But uh, for some reason, my personal account is the one that <laughs> I guess got the most traction. Um, and I post mostly there. Um, so twitter.com slash Mark A. Blan. And uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn as well. I'm not on Facebook. I, I left Facebook quite a while ago. So sorry for Facebook users out there if they want to follow me there. Tough, but <laughs> but that's about it. Awesome. All right. And one last question. Where can I find a copy of this comic you made about carbon isotope biosignature? Oh, oh, thank you for asking. <laughs> I don't know. If, I actually still to this day don't know if anyone's really sat down and read it. So I'd be curious <laughs> if, if, if you read it, what you think of it. Um, so right now it's on my website, artsystudios.com. It's on under my portfolio or my work section. I think it's near the bottom because it's arranged chronologically. So it's been some time. Um, the one thing I'm going to have to double check on though is um, it's it's hosted on ISSU, I-S-S-U-U. I think it's a popular, um, like a page turning. If you have a digital uh, booklet file, you can simulate you know reading a book through it um i know they've changed the things just recently so i don't even know if it's viewable i'll update it by the time that this goes out it should be updated um and you can find it there and if not you can always reach out to me i have uh i have digital copies i can send out i would love i would love for people to read it i think it's exciting it's approachable it's friendly it's got this like tintin kind of look to it and oh nice it's a guided narration into you know understanding carbon isotopes and biosignatures and why nasa is even bothering to investigate planets like mars for you know life uh beyond earth and beyond our solar system so i think it's cool awesome sounds great mark balin thank you so much for being my guest today this was amazing man this was so much fun yes. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It was a lot of fun. And a big thank you to you as well for tuning in. If you'd like to see more of Mark's work, check out his website at www.markbelan.com. I don't always mention this, but I probably should. If you're listening to this podcast on a podcast platform like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or what have you, uh, you might not know I always compile a list of links for each episode and post those along with the embedded player on my personal website. So if you go to pkvisualization.com, you can look up the show notes for each episode and learn more about each guest and their work. Now, I myself and this podcast are not directly affiliated with the AMI, the Association of Medical Illustrators, but I've been a member for about 10 years now. I think it's a wonderful organization and I'm happy to be a part of it. So come out and join us in Des Moines, Iowa this July. It's going to be a blast. I think we're all looking forward to ditching the video call format and getting back to live presentations and social interactions. One of the key features at every AMI conference is the salon, where members of the association submit their artwork to be put on display and awards are given out. As awesome as the artwork is, no matter how you view it, Clicking through the gallery thumbnails on the AMI website just isn't the same as being able to cruise through a physical salon gallery and not only see these pieces, 
which of course always look gorgeous when they're printed and mounted on the wall. But hey, you might just also have a bump into the artists themselves right there on the spot. I can't wait. I've already registered for the conference. I'm going to do a cadaver drawing workshop as well. We'll see how that turns out. I don't know. It's been a while. But if you'd like to join us or even just see what the fuss is about, visit ami.org and you can learn more. So that's it for this episode. I wish you the very best wherever you are out there. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay curious. Peace out, my friends.